grief, death, and suffering are just written all over this project. Every interview I do is hard. There's real pain and there's real loss. How do we acknowledge and reflect on the very difficult deaths that have taken place over the pandemic in long-term care facilities? Not just in BC and Ontario, but across Canada. How do we make meaning out of this difficult history? That became such a, a bedrock for sort of the focus of the album and uh, just my sort of approach, which was, you know, to really think about it as an archive, to think about uh, capturing so many things that I knew were going to be lost soon uh, and, and wanting to make sure that it was there. So the cuckoo clock in the beginning of Snowdrops, um, the piano, which I remembered playing all of my life, the gong that was there that I used to ring uh, when we had family dinners. It's an organic and messy process. I had this interview, and it's just so lovely of Grand talking about being raised, born and raised in Japan, in Takada, just her favorite things like Christmas. COVID in the House of Old, Episode 5, Grief, Death, and Memory Making. I'm your host, Megan Davies. That piece of music that opened this episode was a selection from Snowdrops by Hiroki Tanaka. The Royal Society of Canada's Working Group on Long-Term Care published a really interesting report in April 2020. This was really just at the beginning of it all, and they were reflecting on the first wave of the pandemic. They reported that 81% of COVID deaths in Canada were taking place in long-term care. This is really so much higher than in any other country. 28% at that time in Australia, only 31% in the United States, and 66% in Spain. Our elders were dying without family and friends. Those critical supports were shut out of long-term care. They were anxious, afraid, and they were often not getting the care and attention that a person who is dying needs. And remember that a COVID death is not an easy passage. We spoke with one gentleman. He hadn't seen his wife for four months, and she had dementia, 
and he could try and see her through the window, but she wasn't necessarily able to process that. And her condition deteriorated rapidly. Um, and so it was extremely stressful. And he said he, he was suffering from intrusive thoughts. He couldn't stop thinking about her, worrying about her, uh, and felt very helpless. Albert Banerjee is in some ways the most perfect academic for this topic because he's got a real mix of psychology, communication studies, and sociology. Albert has an interest in sort of more existential aspects of the Western approach to dying. And I wasn't the least bit surprised to hear that he was already on the subject of COVID and grief in long-term care facilities. Albert, share with me what you've heard from the families. My experience with um, families who had been shut out of long-term care came out of a study I was doing on social isolation. And the study was imagined before COVID, but conducted right at the start of COVID over the phone. We were speaking to seniors to learn about their experience with isolation. And one of the most difficult to hear, and I think uh, tragic examples of isolation that we were hearing was not a result of COVID per se, because we were told that seniors, they already were isolated. So the world was joining them in their isolation. But what had changed for many of them was that they were no longer able to see their partners in uh, long-term care homes. And that this was absolutely distressing. I read in Isabel McKenzie's report, she's the seniors advocate out here in BC, and she said that long-term care residents' greatest fear that they would die of loneliness. So family were right to worry. Elderly people in institutions, it's really clear that during the long lockdown, that they were, they were really depressed. They were losing weight, declining physically. Absolutely. Conditions were deteriorating. And I mean, I can't imagine it to know that this, the person you love is dying and that you're actually not going to be at their bedside. And they're going to die alone after being their partner for two decades, three decades, four decades. I can't imagine. All this stuff is just so difficult for us settler Canadians. We're pretty secular folks who generally don't want to go to the death and grief zone. So I want to talk about how we got to a place where death and the spaces on either side of death could be so disregarded. Let's hear from Paula Jardine who, along with her friend and colleague Marina Sajarto, has really opened up this space, using art and music and dark and light for the night for all souls at Mountain View Cemetery. I wanted to start by just asking you to tell us about how death and grief work, or rather don't work, in our society. Oh, gosh. Well, um, hmm. We're so good at medicine now, and we have so many strategies. At all odds, we're going to save this life is what kicks in, in in the hospital. And sometimes that's not the right thing to be doing. I saw that with my mom, and I was so grateful to this young, practical doctor who said, well, you know, if it was my mom, and only she only said this because I pressed her. She said, if it was my mom, I would stop all the treatments now and take her home. And so that's what we did. And now here's some thoughts from Albert. I started, as you mentioned, 
really as as a kid interested in this topic i did my masters on on how we've come to think about death and this idea that death is denied is is really common or that it's taboo i've come to think of it i think rather differently i think death is absolutely everywhere it's absolutely everywhere we just talk about it through health it's been medicalized so if you look at our concerns around health cancer heart disease breast cancer largely is it's the management of our mortality through the medical system so we've been taught to relate to death through these systems of control that teach us to try and master it, trying to live longer, to push death away. And as a result, we don't have the skills to actually engage with our mortality in a way that can accept it as part of who we are and actually even consider it to be a valuable and important part of who we are. So by shoving death off to the medical, medicalizing death, in a sense, we lost out on lessons for life. Yeah, that's what I found when I was doing my master's thesis. People would tell me stories all the time of someone they had lost or a death that was very meaningful because it's I seemed like a safe person to, to talk to about it. Because you're open. Yeah, I, w- I was open. And, and so, you know, I don't think that death is denied. I don't think death is taboo. I think there's a real yearning to to talk about death. Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death got the Pulitzer Prize. Atul Gawande's book, uh, Being Mortal, any airport you go to, you'll find it. And people do want to engage with this topic. I think we're scared and we're unskilled. So tell me what hospice involves. What do you get when you go there for end-of-life care? A number of things that hospice did, first of all, was they took on a holistic model. Key to hospice is, is the medical pain management, but also spiritual care family care. They bring in volunteers from the community. They treat the person as a whole human being, and they treat the family and the volunteers who go through significant training. The incorporation of, of volunteers of all ages really made made it a, a center where the community was engaged. It wasn't an isolated facility. There are a number of people involved with the hospice movement who are helping us rethink death and our relationship to death. That's really different than a long-term care facility. Hugely different. Not just that death is dealt with differently. If the hospice has that intersection with the community that goes back and forth, then the dying process includes life. And I often think that long-term care facilities are so isolated that there's not enough life in them or connection with community. You know, my mom was one of the founders of the Salt Spring Island Hospice in the 1980s. And when she was dying, her two founding buddies of the hospice drove into Victoria, picked up a bunch of groceries and came over. One of them sat with her and one of them sat in the kitchen with my daughter and myself. And, you know, it was lovely. We were just held through the process of her dying. We knew she wasn't suffering. And there was this lovely team. And you know, it was in her house, in her home, which was extremely meaningful. And that team approach brings a lot of talent. I mean, you have physicians there, you have nurses, you have social workers, you have pastors, a whole host of people surrounding the dying person and their family. 
and you started doing research on long-term care. And so you would have been the team member that was alert to dying. In a way, long-term care facilities should be like the champions of palliative care because so many people come in pretty frail and already on the journey toward the end of life. So what did you see? Long-term care was really scary. Uh, Hospice was warm. Long-term care felt very impersonal. I was terrified when I walked in there because of the, the loneliness that I felt. And it was very functional in the sense that technology was very visible. People were providing bodily care services. Feeding and mealtimes felt like a factory. I just wanted to leave as fast as I could. So, you know, whereas in hospice and palliative care, I really liked staying there. I would hang out with people. We would laugh and, and have fun. And, and in long-term care, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Yeah, some of those facilities are really rough to be in, emotionally rough. When the residents come into long-term care, it's often in a moment of crisis. They may be coming from a hospital, and they need emotional support at that time. And the family does too. They also need for their family and for them to be engaged in the process of forward planning toward the end of life. But the problem is in long-term care, they're pretty much focused on keeping people alive rather than helping them prepare for a good death. And that's one of the things that we heard. I mean, the long-term care model was, to some degree, as the name suggests, long-term care. People would come to live for a long time, years. But because it's expensive care, what governments have been doing is restricting access. So you only get in if you are in desperate need of care, if you're very sick. Which means we were finding that people were coming in, coming in already palliative. They're needing to provide hospice services, but they're not geared for that. So what's the solution for that then? Well, I think the solution is is to take lessons from hospice and palliative care and and integrate them more fully into long-term care. So another thing that I picked up is that you have a sensitivity towards ritual, that you understand the importance of ritual. There's a great story that you told in your article for the Journal of Canadian Studies that you observed in a Winnipeg care facility. And it involved this ritual death quilt. The care facility had a quilt that they would lay over the body of someone who died as they took them out of the home. And they took them out the front door, which was a big deal, because before it used to be at the back. They not only took the person out the front door, visible to everyone, but they did have a quilt that was made by someone in the home for this person. And it became a very meaningful part of the ritual of of leaving. You came in and you had your rituals to come in and get settled and you had your rituals to leave as well. So, you know, what you have to do is go back to that home and you've got to ask them if they had the quilt during COVID. Did they manage to keep using the quilt? Mm, that That would be interesting. Really interesting. If that was something that they were able to hold on in crisis... I'd like to know if it made a difference, because then you have a community, not just a bunch of people who happen to work in the same place or a bunch of people who come and live there for a little bit. And it marks it rather. I mean, you mentioned earlier about this tendency to want to move past it very quickly, as opposed to stopping, pausing, marking it and and processing, which is what needs to be done. 
So Albert is telling us that we haven't banished death. We've just handed it over to the Western biomedical machine. And he thinks that long-term care needs to integrate hospice into the way it deals with death instead of buying into the medical model. This is about bringing death into life, which is exactly what Paula does at the Night for All Souls at Vancouver's Mountain View Cemetery. Paula, can you walk us through the Night for All Souls? There's something about being in the darkness. It's a private experience, but it's also... Even if you're not talking to the people around you, knowing that there are other people experiencing whatever level of grief they are, is a comfort. Halfway down that alley, going towards the mountains, is where we opened the event with a Swedish fire lit from the inside. So it burns quite efficiently from the inside out. People light candles and say the names of their dead or place a memorial lantern. And so that's a glowing area of light and love and color and photographs and uh, deep feelings. Further down the path, there's a king crimson maple tree that has become the memorial to missing and murdered Indigenous girls, women, and two-spirit. That is protected by multiple tobacco ties and there are red dresses. We keep the candles lit from that first night right through to the morning of November 2nd. And it's very peaceful in the cemetery. The way that the shrines are and the opportunities for people to interact and express themselves have really evolved over the years in response to how people use things. It is community support coming together to sit with each other and and listen to each other's stories of sorrow and loss, that it's a deeply normal thing to do for humans to do this. It's like it should happen in every community across Canada. It's really a normal thing, but... Yeah. But it's so radical. To me, the response of the community to Night for All Souls certainly demonstrates an appetite for thinking about death and grief out in the expanse of nature and surrounded by art and beauty. We brought you into this podcast with the powerful music of Toronto musician Hiroki Tanaka. Hiroki made a whole album about taking care of his grandma and the way in which it connected him to his past. Hiroki, this is a caregiver album. It's an album about caregiving. It has to also be an album about coming to terms with loss. I wonder if you can speak to the creative process and how it might have helped you grieve and, in a sense, come to terms with your time with your grandmother and her eventual death. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, it, it must have, right? Like, I must have just written these songs, you know, compelled to write these songs because this was the stuff that, you know, my my unconscious, that my body was just churning through and, and trying to process. I don't think I would have written them if, if it wasn't that I was trying to grapple with, with those ideas, with, with the pain and, and the feeling of helplessness. 
But to witness that is to bring bare a lot of our our deep fears and things that are central to our identities as humans, as as beings that walk around saying, I, you know, myself, my things. Um, you lose it all. And and that that is powerful, terrifying, painful, all all those things. Uh, my grandmother is dying. I am going to uh, never see this house uh, that I grew up going to all the time again. And it, and even if I do, it's going to look completely different uh, once the new owners take it and renovate it or whatever. That loss and that 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 the facts of entropy were uh, really difficult for me to, to to sort of come to terms with. And the music helped that because it was both a continuation, a nicer package, you know, to, to wrap that pain around. It was a way of working through it, but also of creating a way forward. And I, I needed that. The stories that I've heard are so difficult. It's such difficult grief. Families didn't get any preparation. They weren't able to hold or touch their loved one. They saw the suffering. Families got to witness the confusion, the struggle to breathe on Zoom or FaceTime, and they were absolutely powerless to help. One woman said, This is so hard. I wish I knew that my dad knew that we were trying so desperately to get to him. Another told me about a series of three catastrophic falls that she took around the time of her mother's death. She was just walking down the street, and each time she went right down on her face, not even using her hands to break the fall. Somehow to me, this made terrible sense, because any way it happens, when your mother dies, when your father dies, the loss is so, so huge. But to lose a parent or a life partner in such impossibly difficult, disconnected, wrong circumstances. I just don't have the words. This is perhaps a digression for you, Paula, but what should we do? How do we... I think this is a question for an artist, and it's a really good question for a public artist who has experience in the area of public grief. So creating an invitation to acknowledge what everybody's feeling, I think is really a good place to start. Like acknowledging death around us gives us greater something to meet the inevitable. We are all going to die. And in my 30s, I didn't need to know that. But I'm 65 now and my friends are dying and that's what's going to happen. So let's be loving about it. That Anyway, that's my advice is like, what should we do? We should have a place at every care home, hire an artist to make you a little place so that everybody can acknowledge that instead of feeling like they're the only ones still carrying that around. I love the Jewish tradition of leaving a stone when you visit a grave. 
Like, here's evidence that I was here. Just because somebody dies does not mean they're not in our lives anymore. There's a them-shaped hole in the physical world, but you don't stop thinking about them. Their influence in your life is around you, so why not acknowledge that and, and turn it into a sweetness? I mean, I really love the way that you framed it as an invitation, and I think that would be so powerful, and the artists would be there. Yeah, and when you do that, include in your plan what you do with it when it's no longer time for that to be in that form or when it fills up with messages and it needs to move on. It's not just stuff to put in the recycling. You want to have some kind of respectful way to finish that. We gather up the messages and say the names out loud and burn them all. It seems like the thing to do, the right thing to do, just to give things their proper attention. I mean, it's also to me that this would be an act of grief, but like the red dress tree at Night for All Souls, it would also be a political act, would it not? What would be a political act? To create that kind of space or shrine at long-term care facilities. That would be political because it would acknowledge that people died? Well, it would acknowledge that they died because we failed them. We, collectively. Well, I would think there would be all kinds of feelings expressed at such a shrine and not all of the deaths would be COVID-related. Like that we would acknowledge then that this is part of a whole. And some people might express that would give you an opportunity to express that because that's something I know you feel deeply that we failed. So it's just that this is really helpful for me. So we open up, you open up a space for people to just express whatever form that grief takes. You're so wise. (laughs) Well... I know, it's because I'm 65 now. I'm only 62, so when I'm 65... Well, you know, in a few years, you're just like suddenly, it's like the finger of God. (laughs) To the darkness below me, keep me safe till morning let my sins be all forgiven. Bless the friends I love so well. Take me when I die to them. That was episode five of COVID in the House of Old. I'm your host, Megan Davies. This episode featured the voices of Hiroki Tanaka, Albert Banerjee, and Paula Jardine. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Cohen Hammond. It featured music by Cohen Hammond and Hiroki Tanaka. This project would not be possible without the support 
of a Jack and Doris Shadbolt Fellowship in the Humanities from Simon Fraser University. Stay tuned for another episode. It's cold.